Does he have to be paid off? Or? What's uh, the thematic verse in this book that I suggested to you as a good uh, capsuling summary statement? You said Romans, you meant? I'm sorry. Revelation 11.15. Can somebody quote it without looking at it? Anybody memorize it? Seventh angel sounded. There were great voices or noises in heaven saying the kingdoms, plural, of this world are become the kingdom, singular, of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. So if you didn't get anything else out of the meaning of this book, I'd say that's pretty good meaning right there. The church, the kingdom of Christ, transcends, supplants, and outlives, outlasts all human kingdoms, as it has done now for 2,000 years. So in chapter 1, we have after an introductory section that goes to verse 9, 8 or 9, then the rest of the chapter to verse 20 gives us the first apocalyptic vision. Where does the word apocalyptic or apocalypse occur in the book? Chapter 1, verse 1. How's it translated? Revelation. So here's an apocalyptic vision. What is apocalyptic language? What makes it different from other language, other types of literature? Okay, so it's loaded with symbolism, signs, a lot of figures and uh, images. Some of them, uh, many of them, very unrealistic in the sense that they don't describe reality like a seven-headed dragon. And, um, and therefore, the language is, is in very, uh, it's very picturesque. It's designed to create images, pictures. And, um, and yet, it's all figurative and symbolic. So you have to sort out the meaning. And I suggested to you that this figure, described as one like the Son of Man, standing among seven uh, lampstands. Here the, the author just goes ahead and breaks the ice and says, by the way, these symbolize, these lampstands symbolize the seven churches. And we looked at all the imagery, the golden sash, the burnished feet, the uh, eyes like sockets of coal, uh, seven stars in his hand, all of this, uh, these colors and images are designed to communicate a, a total picture of the pure, holy, uh, righteous, penetrating, powerful, victorious Christ, standing among his churches in complete control. It appeared to them that they were out there vulnerable and susceptible to all of the uh, intrusions of the empire and all of the persecution and oppression that was directed at them. But here is the true portrait. Jesus is among his churches in total control, and therefore he will see them through the adversity that they are facing. Then we have two chapters of little mini letters directed to these uh, seven churches. Remember the number seven is selected. Uh, not, I think, because there were just seven churches per se, but because that number uh, in apocalyptic language is the perfect number that conveys perfection, wholeness, completeness. And it's used uh, more than any other number really in the Bible let alone in the book of Revelation. How many times in the book of Revelation do you remember? 54 times. 
And here are these churches that uh, are experiencing this uh, um, affliction. The Greek word is uh, flipsis. It sounds kind of afflicting. And um, they are feeling the pressure, this hard pressure from a world that has, uh, has it out for them. I mean, they are, uh, they are the target of the hardship and suffering that is taking place at this time. And so uh, rather than Jesus, other than giving them this initial, in chapter 1, this initial reassurance, he then turns his attention to talking to them personally about their spiritual condition. As if that takes precedence over the external circumstances that they're having to face. And sure enough, that, that makes perfect sense. That's Christianity. It really doesn't matter what's swirling around us, what's going on in our lives as far as threats to our, uh, to our own spiritual condition or physical threats to our country or our personal lives. That's secondary to what is my spiritual condition? Am I right with God? If I'm not right with Christ, then what does it matter what happens to me out here in the world in terms of everybody else and the way they treat me. It's of no ultimate consequence or significance. Uh, we endure everything that we endure as Christians with a goal in mind and we're anticipating the outcome. What's the rest of the world do with all of the suffering that they go through? They go through pain and suffering and disease like us. What, what does it matter? It's of no ultimate significance as far as uh, them on a road, a trek, headed toward a specific destination. They're headed toward a destination, but not the one that would be, that, that would make all of the things they're going through make sense and have ultimate meaning. So, he addresses their spiritual condition and he dresses them down. There's, uh, there's some uh, good things sprinkled in, but not much. They have some major glaring uh, spiritual deficiencies that must be dealt with, otherwise it matters not what they may face in terms of the empire and the external persecution uh, that they are facing. Now, once he lays that out for them and hits them hard, now we have in rapid-fire sequence beginning in chapter 4, one apocalyptic vision or a portrait after another, beginning, of course, with the ultimate one, a second, uh, no doubt, the, the ultimate picture of uh, Revelation, uh, and only comparable to uh, chapter 5, and then chapter uh, 17, when we see the victorious warrior uh, ahead of a mounted cavalry. And again, we have uh, these four living creatures, which we said represent every form of life in the universe. You have uh, these um, numerous hosts seated around, everything centered on this one being the Ancient of Days, uh, and all of the coloration and, and so the lightning and so forth conveys these concepts, transcendent, holy, righteous, supreme ruler of the universe. Remember the emerald rainbow that surrounds him, uh, conveying hope as rainbows uh, have in other places in scripture. And um, all the focus, all the attention, all the worship is directed toward uh, the, this great creator who is worthy, who is worthy to receive all glory, honor, and power. Uh, so again, see, you've got to pull yourself out of your predicament, your little perspective in the world, which is extremely limited. You and I are not all-knowing. We're not all-powerful. Uh, 
Uh, we just kind of are acquainted with a very small portion of reality based on our five senses that we can take in. But, uh, and so it's easy for us to look around and say, oh, you know, look what's happening in the country and with the president. Look what's happening with these other countries and, and Islam. And look what's going on right here in our country with all these wicked people that are promoting homosexuality and all that. I mean, we have this little environment and it all kind of pressing on us. But that's, uh, that's all going on, but that's not, spiritually, that's not a correct assessment. That's momentary, it's temporary, it's a tempest in a teacup. Here's reality. The center of not only the universe, but of all time, and all locations beyond the physical realm. The center is God. Now, the more you, I believe the message of Job is, the more you focus on him, the less you'll focus on yourself and your circumstances. That's where the focus needs to be. I realize we get, we're conscious and we have to deal with the circumstances that we're living in. I, I realize that. But there's got to be an overriding or undergirding sense that this is all temporary. And here is where the real focus is every day of our lives. You know, when Paul said in Thessalonians, pray without ceasing, well, obviously, you can't go 24-7 ignoring everything that's going on around you, keeping everything out of your mind except constant prayer. So that can't be what he means. That, that's impossible to do. But does he not mean that as you go through life, you are consistently and constantly aware of God and his presence? And in that sense, you are communing with him and perhaps even frequently pausing just to make a comment to him. That's prayer. Ongoing, intimate connection to God. And that is what will cause them to get through all of this, even if they are called upon to die, to lose their physical lives. What does chapter 2, verse 10 say? Fear none of those things that you will suffer. Behold, Satan will cast some of you into prison that you may be test tested. Then what? Be faithful, even if they kill you. And what? You'll receive a crown of life. All right, so all focus is upon him who is seated upon the throne. You go to chapter 5 and you see he who is uh, there as well, beside the throne. He's depicted as the lion of the tribe of Judah who is a lamb. A lion who is a lamb. Remember I mentioned to you that Brother Warren wrote a book um, Maybe that's what it's called, the lion who is a lamb. Forgotten, but uh, stressing those two sides of Jesus and God and deity. You know, there's the compassionate, benevolent, sacrificial side of deity, but then there's the, the lion, the, uh, you know, the ferocious one, the one who can uh, crush you and exercise wrath against you and all who oppose him. And yet the perfect blending in deity. And we see it played out throughout Scripture. Well... Uh, the lamb is in the presence of God, and the term worthy is used to refer to him as well. We have a song based on these two chapters, Worthy Art Thou. Till, was it Tillides Tedley, I think, that wrote that? He is there prepared to offer the solace and comfort to persecuted saints. And he, like uh, in chapter 4, the figure sitting upon the throne, uh, receives praise and worship that you know, is coming heaped upon him which is absolutely appropriate and, and do him. And again, see, keep this in mind, that contrast with the one who sits on the throne 
over the, the empire and over much of the world. And what he's able to do to inflict suffering against God's people. But now there's your two pictures. Now which one matters? Which one transcends the other and supersedes it? So these are incredible images that uh, would surely have given that first century group of Christians a reason to take a deep breath and relax somewhat, even as they were facing very harsh circumstances. All right, remember, um, there's a scroll that needs to be opened. It has seven seals on it, and no one is found worthy to do so until Jesus uh, is identified as such. Um, what was the name of that song? They searched through heaven. I keep forgetting it too. That's it, isn't it? Oh, what a savior! No. Hmm. Yes. Yeah. She pointed out to me that that is no doubt playing off of the imagery of chapter five and uh, and six. Five fifty one. If you all want to look at that, it's. Uh, Fits the concept going on. Well, note of uh, chapter 5 uh, specifically. So uh, my point was that uh, he is worthy, and so he commences to break these seals. And with the first four seals, there come these uh, horses uh, that are um, conquest, uh, war, famine, and pestilence, I suggested to you. All of these closely tied together and related to and therefore simply imagery for what we see all through the Old Testament where God harnesses the forces of nature, natural calamity, and uses that as one of the, as some of the tools in his arsenal to deal with human beings in a non-miraculous way in time in history. That's what I'm suggesting to you is taking place there, and this imagery will repeat itself in completely different images, but the same meaning. And again, we must not minimize that because, like I said, the Old Testament's loaded with it. This is a part of who God is, how he's dealt with humanity, and I'm convinced he's dealing that way today. Even though we don't have prophets that can come and interpret it for us and say, hey, you do realize that this is that. God is punishing them for this reason, or he's trying to motivate people to do what's right. Uh, these were purposes that are very clear in the Old Testament. Uh, that God used them uh, to do that. Um, you know, he can even use things like Jonah finally saying, okay, okay, I'm, I'm the fault here. You, you all pitch me over, say, <laughs> pick him up and gladly throw him overboard. Well, can you not see that that's the, the kind of thing that you and I can face and, and no doubt do face when we get crosswise with God and not focused on obeying him and doing what he wants us to do? Somebody comes along and throws us overboard. What is that? Keep moving? Okay. I thought maybe you were trying to spin something or what there. <clears throat> so, these represent tools of destruction that God has at his disposal to punish the enemies of his people. Chapter 7, a parenthesis, a respite before the unleashing of these forces. And it is the sealing of the faithful. 
And this sealing, notice the word seal here is not the same as the word seal in chapter 6 of the breaking of the seals. This is like a branding iron seal that you stamp or, or you know, uh, place an imprint upon. And these individuals are sealed uh, from the wrath of God that will be unleashed against the enemies of Christ. Remember how Abraham asked that question, will you destroy the righteous along with the wicked? Here would be one, ex one response to that very thing. I remember I gave disclaimers about the concept uh, of the angels. Notice uh, the sealing on the forehead will be contrasted with the 666 seal uh, of the beast. So a lot of inner penetration going on here. Uh, then uh, you remember we have um, the next series of uh, sevens. This is in chapter 8 and chapter 9. Uh, Six, uh, these seven trumpets are given, and six of them sound, and we have the same sort of thing occurring as the, as the breaking of the seals. Uh, punishment inflicted on the persecutors of God's people. And there's a strong emphasis here upon repentance. You know, if you will repent, but their warnings uh, are ignored. That brings us then to another parenthesis, uh, an intervention, a, a respite in between the uh, sixth and the seventh image. So we had that between the sixth and the seventh seal, and here we have it between the sixth and the seventh uh, trumpet. And it is this heavenly uh, messenger, kind of an angelic being that comes down out of heaven, one foot on the land, one foot in the sea, uh, and he um, mainly has an announcement to make that uh, there will be no further delay. See, God's people have been just bearing up under the crushing load of this oppression that they're enduring. And um, so these messages are being given, and now he's saying, look, you know, God's pretty much fed up with this, and so uh, no further delay. And you remember he has, he gives uh, a book to um, John and, his, and tells him to eat it. There it's in his hand. And uh, it's sweet to his taste, but it's bitter, sours in his stomach. Uh, no doubt an image taken right from Ezekiel that uh, shows, um, you know, the twofold feature of being a preacher. You know, there's exhilaration and joy, and, and um, it's like consuming, you know, a sweet-tasting pastry, you know, God's Word. And yet, the bitterness of trying to deal with people who are not receptive to that word. And uh, even words of judgment that the preacher himself may not um, want individuals to have to endure, but they must because they refuse to repent. Well, the preachers aren't gleeful about that if their heart's right. And so God's messengers can be uh, are in a, a tight place uh, between a rock and a hard place, so to speak. That's chapter 10. Then we come to chapter 11 and the seventh uh, sounding. But first we have the first half of the chapter up to verse 15 is these images. Let's back up there and look at that one. The two olive trees and these lampstands, each with seven um, lights. Uh, and then as the chapter proceeds, there's this resurrection of the the cause of Christ as it appears to have been killed and lying in the street. And uh, all of these images are simply stressing that um, it may seem to us on earth, and in their case in the first century, like the cause of Christ is being thwarted. It's being stopped. 
You know, whenever uh, those judges on the Supreme Court, remember we had prayers and everything here at the building, and, and the Supreme Court ruled to legalize uh, same-sex marriage. You know, kind of a, ah, uh, it would be easy for Christians to think, man, we're losing this war. We're being beat down. The church is, being, is under heavy assault. And all that's true. We are under heavy assault. The church is being mightily opposed more and more in our society. Not only by those really outspoken, aggressive, um, angry, liberal element that they're just every day doing everything they can to try to oppose Christian values, but even the bulk of our society, they may not be rabid about it, but they, they're not going to church. Did I tell you that? that uh, I always quote that, that statistic that a number of polls have shown over the last 10, 15 years at least that um, the number of people that attend church on a regular basis, you know, they have different categories. Uh, the polls show that uh, 39% go to church on Sunday morning. Well, I ran across some other research, just in the, the a more recent research, that says, you know, that's, those polls come from them being called and asked, do you go to church every Sunday? Yeah, well, they, they say they do, but they lie in bed. I'm not feeling well today. There's just a whole lot of that. So they turned to the churches and said, tell us how many you have attending. And they added all that up. 17%. Half, more than half of what people claim is the case. So think about that. That's less than, let's round it off to 20%. One out of five Americans go to church on Sunday. So four out of five don't go, not regularly at least, with any sort of consistency. So it would seem like Christianity is going down. Well, there's fewer people that care to live for God, but that doesn't affect God. It doesn't in, in the sense of he's going to be less than God. And it's not going to cause the cause of Christ to somehow, what, diminish or evaporate? It's not going to happen. It's been here a long time. And it'll outlast the United States of America and our society, our state, our country, and the world. There's a message of revelation. That's part of it. Victory's already been assured. It's already decided. God knows exactly how all this is going to play out. It's just a matter of who's going to make the decision to go with God or to go with Satan. That's what's going on right now in the world. These skirmishes, these, these cultural, spiritual, moral skirmishes that we see constantly. That's just the playing out of where people are going to spend eternity. But the outcome is already decided. That runs strongly through this book. So the promotion of the gospel is not going to be thwarted. If somebody says, you're not going to preach that here, okay. But that's not going to stop the preaching of the gospel. It hasn't in 2,000 years. The cause of Christ cannot be stamped out. Let's put it that way. And then we come to the central thesis in verse 15, which I suggested to you cuts the book in half and constitutes a suitable summary statement of the entire book that we began with this evening. Human kingdoms come and go. Look how many have come and gone. More than you and I can count or know. Archaeologists are still uncovering civilizations that they never knew existed. 
They crumbled into the dust of antiquity. And they're gone until they dug around and found some um, clay tablets or some other form of communication. They didn't even know they existed, like that one down in South America, the Noskins, the Noska civilization. They knew that a people had lived there. They just didn't know much about it. They found some buildings that they considered to be temples. Oh, you always wonder if archaeologists know for sure what they're talking about, but they claimed that they were temples, and they were constructed of stones that were so enormous, weighed so much, that no known combination of equipment that we have today could move those stones. Uh, they found evidence of brain surgery, hot air balloon flight 2,000 years ago. So they considered it a somewhat advanced civilization, but they didn't dig around too long before they found pornographic images and stuff like that. And they're, they're just, there's nothing there, it's barren. I don't, I don't remember that specifically being said. But there are many places in the world that right now are arid. You know what term the Bible used, the prophets used, like Jeremiah and others? Desolate. I will leave you desolate. God has stepped in in human history and desolated various parts, just like he did Sodom and Gomorrah, but I'm not suggesting that he always rained down a fire out of heaven or anything like that. But I'm suggesting whatever method he used, why would we think he's only done that sort of thing once? God's not obligated to tell us every time in human history in the last 6,000 years that he stepped in and desolated a civilization because of their wickedness. And I suggest to you it's happened many times. And there are some barren, desert, desolated parts of the world. Um, even when you look at Saudi Arabia and those places where their people are actually living, those places weren't always that way. And I don't think it's due to climate change and, and uh, environmental mistreatment of the land. I think God himself has, like the flood, has desolated the land many times. Jeremy, did you have a question or comment? The first occurrence of kingdom? Uh, well, actually, that expression seems to be used in Scripture to refer to the fact that God pulls people out of all of those kingdoms. Maybe only a minority, typically throughout human history, but He nevertheless pulls out of all nations, all languages, all people. You know, those kind of expressions are used over and over. And um, I think that's what it's talking about, that there is no kingdom on the planet that's like Christ's kingdom in that it's composed of people from everywhere. I think that's the main concept there. All right, so here's the center of the book, and, um, and this is reassurance that um, your citizenship in, in the church, in the kingdom of Christ, will surpass all other you know, human citizenship. Whatever citizenship we may have, I know we appreciate our citizenship here in this country, but it too will ultimately pass by the wayside. But your citizenship, remember how uh, well, the Hebrews writer put it, is in heaven. Our citizenship is in heaven. So there's the eternal kingdom that will, that will move from this planet right on into the eternal realm forever and ever. Now, what he's saying? Now, what else do you and I need to know, and what else do we need to motivate us to not throw in the towel, but to stay faithful to God?
That's a great, uh, great passage. All right, chapter 12 to the end now is um, kind of a shift in the sense that this first half has been uh, more about uh, the church. Now it's moved, the focus is more on the Christ, I think. And we're first introduced to the characters in this cosmic apocalyptic drama. Here is the ringleader of all. We talked about this last week. This is about where we got primary adversary of the Lord's church. He's the instigator of all of the evil that is directed toward us in our individual lives and against the church as a whole. Uh, you know, people don't realize that they're doing Satan's bidding. We talked about that last week, did we not? But they are. When people oppose the church and go against Christianity, they're doing what Satan wants them to do. And Christians aid and abed Satan when they do not stay faithful and do what they should do. And of course, the classic example we used last week was... Peter, in his comment to Jesus, trying to keep him from going and getting killed. And Jesus said, get behind me, Satan. So you and I don't want to say or do anything that discourages Christianity and the work of the church. Uh, because in so doing, we're just helping Satan with his cause. Now, uh, Satan doesn't appear as a, as a seven-headed blood-red dragon on earth or as a two-horned, you know, fellow carrying a pitchfork or anything like that. He operates through people... Nation circumstances. That's the way God, he has always worked. Uh, even in the garden. He did take on that you know, snake-like form, but the point is um, he has people he can work through. And he's using, in this case, chapter 13, two beasts. Seven-headed sea beast comes up out of the ocean. Feet of a, a bear, body of a leopard, seven lion heads, mouths. And the second beast, the false prophet, that uh, causes the empire to worship the first beast. And we know historically all this took place uh, in the empire with regard to Caesar and especially throughout Asia Minor where these churches are located. Uh, it was very rampant, very in, uh, intentional, and very strong. I ran across this image and thought I'd show it to you what this artist uh, did with this. I thought that was pretty cool. You know, even if evolution were true, Could anything like this ever be produced? Of course not. Apocalyptic imagery. That brings us to chapter 14. Who does God have in this apocalyptic um, interchange supporting his side, as opposed to Satan and his two henchmen? Well, he has uh, the Son of Man seated upon the throne. He has uh, a sickle of judgment that is used to... Um, inflict a judgment. You know, the imagery is that he, he sweeps mankind with it and tosses them into this great winepress of God's wrath. But out of it comes, of course, not grape juice, but uh, blood. Uh, long enough, it's, it's uh, what, 200 miles long, and it's deep enough to cover the, to go up to the bridles of the horses. All of that figurative language, uh, the point is, Judgment and wrath uh, will come upon those who oppose the cause of Christ, then and now. That brings us to the final series of sevens. Okay, so we had seven seals. What do seals do? They're intended to be broken so that they can disclose information and urge you to listen to it. Then we had seven trumpets. What do trumpets do? Trumpets sound out warnings. They urge people to pay attention, listen. And in that case, to repent, to change their ways. 
Well, none of that was heated. It's clear from the book, none of those things were heated. So now we have seven bowls. Bowls are intended to be poured out. And we are told that these are full of the wrath of God. So it's clear what's going to happen beginning in chapter 15. Uh, for once and for all, God's wrath will be poured out. 16, 17, and 18, it occurs. And here is the artist's conception of those uh, seven bowls. The first one causes painful, ugly, excruciating sores to come upon uh, all those who are opposed to the cause of Christ. The second one turns the ocean, the, the salt water sources to blood, kills everything in it. The uh, third um, bowl is poured out on fresh water sources, does the same thing there. And then the next bowl, searing heat that literally just scorches uh, people's skin. And then the next bowl, the uh, beast's kingdom is thrown into darkness. The next bowl causes the Euphrates to dry up, enabling the eastern forces to come forth, which is exactly historically what happened with the fall of Rome, by the way. And yet uh, the, the three, Satan and the beasts, uh, spit out these frogs in an effort to try to thwart this, but they are unable to do so. And then finally you have these, what, 100-pound hailstones that come down out of heaven. And uh, you can imagine what that would do to the human uh, population. See, notice all of this is, is just imagery. This, the sun's not going to heat up, superheat at some point, and scorch everybody on earth. Uh, none of that's real. It's all figurative. But does it not give you uh, the impression that he who controls the created order um, can unleash forces against the population and there's nothing they can do. They're helpless and vulnerable before the great creator. And he will ultimately do what needs to be done in his justice, in his, his righteousness. And so again, Christians ought to be comforted, encouraged, reassured. Reassured now and then. We ought to be reassured that God is in control. That brings us then to chapter 19. Here's kind of the pinnacle, climax, culmination of this thing. This uh, marvelous warrior uh, seated upon a white stallion. He is at the head of the mounted cavalry of heaven. He has three names, uh, faithful and true, um, the word of God, and king of kings and lord of lords. And his garment has been dipped in blood, and he has this sharp two-edged sword protruding out of his mouth. He's wearing multiple crowns. Pretty marvelous image for the, the greatness of Christ, his power and his uh, judgment and his righteous wrath. And uh, who, can, who can oppose that? You know, who can oppose Christ? A lot of people think that they have. And, and they've done a lot of damage in the sense of spiritual damage to individuals who succumb. But you think of all of the great uh, infidels of human history. Uh, if I were to mention some of their names, having studied apologetics history, a lot of the younger people would have never heard of them. Who are they? You know, like Ingersoll, people like that, or Voltaire. And, and yet at the time, they splashed on the planet. Everybody knew who they were. They influenced a lot of young people to believe their thinking. But where are they now? And every individual that falls for Satan's ploys like that will have to give an account. But it doesn't do any ultimate uh, damage or destruction to the kingdom of Christ. 
because um, even if there's few that be that find it, uh, that's sufficient. And God is simply letting everybody make their own choice. No one had to listen to those infidels and buy it. They needed to study for themselves and find the flaws in that thinking. The fact that they chose not to do that shows their, their own spiritual flaw and the reason for their being lost. Won't be able to point at Voltaire at the end of time and that justify the choices that they made. He destroys the Roman persecutors. Chapter 20. Satan is momentarily prevented from persecuting Christians using the specific historical ploy that he was using at the time. And this is represented as him having been thrown into a bottomless pit with a golden chain around him. Notice you can't bind a spiritual being with a gold chain. So this is figurative. The idea being, though, that he's being temporarily restrained. And we know historically that occurred. That after Domitian, uh, the next emperor kind of stopped a lot of it, melted down the images and so forth, but then it broke out again in the early second century uh, for a brief period. Now I think uh, the apocalyptic uh, imagery suddenly takes us to the ultimate outcome of all this. See, all through human history there are these skirmishes that, that um, catch the world's attention for the moment, but really we all need to realize even today, no matter how long the earth continues to stand, one day, the ultimate outcome of all this is going to occur. And that's going to entail everyone being cast into the lake of fire, including Satan himself. So he's not in the lake of fire. He's not ruling over hell. He's walking about as a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour on this planet. But one day he will be taken by God. Notice there's no power struggle going on between God and Satan. Absolutely not. He's a created being. God can do anything he wants with him at any time. But when the day comes, he's going to pitch him into ultimate torment and suffering along with all humans who remain estranged from God. But what about everybody else? Here you have this incredible threefold portrait, so far as I can tell, of the ultimate outcome of the righteous. And again, it's all apocalyptic imagery. Uh, so I don't, I don't think heaven's going to be literally this way. But it's a picture that causes you to want to go there, that you know it will be well uh, for, for you. You know, the first uh, image is that uh, city. Okay, so I didn't put that in here. That, that city four square comes down out of heaven. And um, then you have inside of this city uh, a crystal river that flows from the throne of God. The tree of life grows on both sides of it, producing its fruit, though, 12 months out of the year, with healing power in its leaves. Uh, by the way, there, there aren't streets of gold in heaven. It's a street, according to this apocalyptic imagery. And I think that all these three portraits that are given here in chapters 21 and 22, by the way, we didn't show the great white judgment scene, did we? I should have done that. Everybody stands before the throne. But heaven itself is depicted in this language. And notice this is a gate of pearl. What's the song that we sing? All the gates of pearl are made or something like that. That all comes from this. Here this pearl's rolled off to the side so you can see inside. And no night there, no need for lamps and sun or moon or anything like that. 
But I, the more I poured over this, the more I'm convinced that it gives you three ways to think of heaven. Heaven is a place of complete and perfect presence of God. Okay? No matter how close you and I might get to God in this physical life, we will not, we cannot have the kind of nearness and intimacy that we will have when we're face to face, so to speak. So that's one feature of heaven. You're right there in the presence of God. Remember how Jesus put it in chapter 3, verse 20? You remember that verse? Can you quote it? Chapter 3, verse 20? Where Jesus said, uh, remember he uses the key word used 16 times in the book. He uses it twice in that verse. Chapter 3, verse 20. What? To him that overcomes, there's one occurrence of it. Will I grant to sit with me in my throne, even as I have overcome and sat down with my father in his throne. So you're going to be right there in the presence of God and Christ. That's incredible. That's heaven. Number two, it's a place of perfect protection. Remember, there's no need for locks on the doors or anything like that. There will be no antagonists lurking nearby. Uh, we will enjoy perfect protection provided by God himself in this eternal realm. Uh, security, that's complete security. We won't have to have security alarms to tip us off or anything. We won't have to fear anybody or anything. And then number three, all of our needs will be completely met. It's hard for us as physical human beings to imagine um, a realm where we have spiritual bodies, 1 Corinthians 15 says, spiritual bodies, and therefore not in need of physical sustenance or air and things like that. But whatever it is that we need in order to sustain ourselves, God's going to provide all there is God's depiction, I think, of the eternal realm and the substance of it. What it could, you know, we're thinking in terms of gold streets and crystal rivers and all of this, when all he's trying to convey to us is spiritual things. So the presence of God, perfect security or protection, and then provision. All right, is our time up? Three minutes, all right, chapter one. After the introduction, what's the first image that you have? Or what's the meaning of it? Chapter 1, 9 through 20. Christ standing among his churches. Okay? Chapters 2 and 3. Seven churches. They need to get their act together so they can cope with the external persecution that they're facing. Chapter 4. Of what? Yes. It's specifically God. Chapter 5? What? Uh, that's 6. Yes. Jesus is also in heaven beside God and qualified to assist persecuted Christians and to unseal those seals. Now 6? Six. 6, 7, 8, and 9 is the seals, the trumpets, or, uh, and the bowls, or, uh, the, and the trumpets. And the enemies of the church are warned to repent. They're threatened with punishment if they do not desist. All of that imagery, say, that people pour over and, well, I don't agree. I think it's this, this, that you get lost in it instead of standing back and saying, you know, this is saying that these people are being warned. They better straighten up. The empire is going to face um, the consequences. And then chapter 10, that respite. Then chapter 11, the final trumpets blown and the theme. 11 verse 15. Chapter 12 through 13. Satan and 
and his henchmen, his two henchmen. Chapter 14, okay, Christ's response to that, God and his two allies, well able to meet the challenge. All right, 15 and following, the fat hits the fan. What? Terrible vengeance of God poured out on the persecuting power of Rome, the empire itself, and then the city itself. By the way, the city is split into three parts, and horrible things happen. And then chapter 20 to 22.5, the ultimate outcome, final victory of the righteous. And then the rest of the chapter is uh, kind of like the first eight verses of the first chapter. They're closing, winding down, and urging people to... Uh, to do what God tells him to do. Uh, if you want your name kept in the book of life, then you follow God. Okay? Any comments or questions? That is it. We did it. Oh, epilogue conclusion. Nothing? <sighs> okay.